Oh, there we go. Hey. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks uh, for accepting my invitation and accepting to be on my show. Sure. So uh, I have gone through a profile. I can see uh, you're doing a lot of work from long time. So I thought to tell about your work to my audience. Okay, cool. So Happy before that, can you can you please introduce yourself to my audience? Yeah, of course. Um, so my name is Christopher Crowley. Um, I've been, uh, you know, working in cybersecurity for a while. Um, but I started working in computers when I was pretty young. Uh, I actually grew up near Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, and so in the eighties, I uh, got a job, uh, after high school, basically going to, uh, going to an office and running tape backup, uh, to do the daily backups for the place. Uh, it was literally reel to reel tape, uh, in order to be able to like, um, let the, let the systems administrators go home. They pretty much just like hired a high school kid, trained me how to do it, but I ended up doing a bunch of like systems administration work and stuff like that. So that was, uh, that was an, a Unix variant called Ultrix. Um, and then I also, um, did that and managed, um, you know, systems administration, basic kind of duties for some systems that were another operating system called VMS. And the, the VMS, um, developers that were digital apparently went to, uh, went to Microsoft after that. And, um, you know, they, they ended up creating the NT operating system out of that. So like, you know, from the, the history perspective, that's kind of where I started working in computers. Um, you know, I, after that, I went to college and did a bunch of other stuff. Um, started working, um, around 2000 at Tulane University, um, for them managing their, uh, their systems. Uh, I lived in New Orleans, uh, and worked at Tulane University until 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. So I went through a major disaster um, and dealt with all the IT stuff uh, related to that. Because of Hurricane Katrina, I left New Orleans and went up to Washington, D.C. Um, area. And so the, the D.C. area basically has a lot of a lot of work. So I was working in IT um, and cybersecurity uh, around that time. So that was that was really, you know, like the. The start of my cybersecurity stuff was more like, was at Tulane, it was like 2002, SQL Slammer, Blaster, Nachi, 2003, um, that kind of stuff, implemented some anti-spam, because um, we didn't have anti-spam, <laughs> you know, in the like 2001-ish, 2002-ish kind of, kind of uh, time frame. So that's like my my history. Um, more recently, as I've worked at a bunch of different places, um, i teach for the SANS Institute. I teach my SOC class, which is my take on how to design, build, uh, operate, and run um, your security operations capability. Um, I write the SOC survey every year. I've done that for the last seven years, which is uh, an, an analysis of what people are doing for their cybersecurity operations. So that's me. <laughs> So security operations, uh, working uh, and uh, training thousands of students. So how is that experience? Yeah, it's interesting. So um, I started teaching when I was still at Tulane. Um, and the, the the teaching has been something that has always been very rewarding for me. 
Both of my parents um, have been teachers, either part-time or full-time. Um, and so that's just something that I think comes naturally to me on the, on the one hand. Um, I'm very good at helping people to understand things. Um, so the, so the teaching is very rewarding for me, uh, in that regard. Uh, I, I'm also very good at, um, learning new things. And so I've studied myself over, over decades of how do I learn things? Um, and I've sort of come up with different techniques that are helpful for me and are oftentimes helpful for other people, uh, in order to, uh, in order to help them in their career. Um, help them with their memory, help them with their recall, help them with their synthesis of information, and help them with analysis. And I really think all of those are, are different uh, different things. I gave a talk for um, Educause, uh, which is an educational group in the U.S. Uh, several years ago. It was around the COVID time frame, and the, I was supposed to go do it in person, and they they canceled the conference, of course, because of because of COVID. But I. I did it. And so I did a recording of it and I talked about training because it was an educational conference and I talked about training in the cybersecurity space. But, you know, what's really interesting for me about the training that I do is the impact on the individual. And it's very rewarding for me when people tell me later how me teaching them a class, you know, it influenced or affected them in a in a positive way. And I'll give you, you know, one uh, one example. I had a student who uh, was in Singapore many years ago, and um, I just just saw him again in in Bahrain. I was uh, I was giving a, a presentation in um, in Bahrain, a couple of presentations for an event that was there. And he came up to me and said, hey, you know, I remember you, you know, this is where we met and so on. And um, he was completely new to cybersecurity at the time. And he took like a moderately difficult class. It was uh, it was a class on doing um, network detections and hunting and other stuff. And he I mean, he was he was very interested. He was trying really hard, but it was everything was just so new to him that it was very difficult to absorb and retain the information. And so he emailed, emailed me a couple of months after the class finished and he said, Chris, I'm trying to do this certification and I'm, I'm, I failed the practice. He said, I followed your technique. I have this thing that I shared online about how to study for SANS exams and how to make indexes and do all this stuff. And very, you know, sort of detailed approach to it. And I share a script, but it's all about the studying yourself personally and, and, and learning things. He said, I, I followed what you said to do. And I took both practice exams and I failed them both. <laughs> right? It's like I failed both of them. I said, OK, well, you know, what you really should do is just get an extension from, from Sam's that costs money. But, you know, do you want to pass the test? Don't take it now. Wait <laughs> right? and study more. And he bought more extensions and, you know, took took more more practice tests and kept studying and kept studying and eventually passed the exam. I mean, it, it probably took him six, eight months to study all the material to the degree that he, you know, he understood it. And this was years ago. This was five, six years ago. And I just ran into him. And, and you know, this is what he does, does as a profession now. And so that transition from somebody who is like new and feeling uncomfortable and feeling kind of out of place into someone who's now a professional doing that work is really is really nice to hear about from me. So.
So uh, before digging more about uh, you and the work that you're doing and the work that you have done, uh, I just want to quickly uh, uh, tell about my sponsor for this episode. Yeah, of course. So, so it's Stat Adam. Sales and customer facing teams often switch between several communication tools causing time management and visibility issues that can slow down deal velocity. The solution, join Stat Adam, where conversation converts. With Stat Adam, your team can centralize all communications within your chat tool. No more switching, waiting, or fragmented chat. Because chat messaging is where business gets done. Sales teams can stay in Slack or Microsoft Teams and connect with customers, leads, or candidates on their existing chat tool. Building better relationships through constant communication in inbound or outbound messaging. Make it encrypted and compliant. Plus, bring all communications in your CRM or ticketing system. No data entry required. John start Adam to enhance the customer relationships and close deals at hyperspeed with unified chat. Uh, thank you again, uh, Christopher, for your presence. Yeah, great. Yeah, I, I really like the um, the use of chat and chat automations. Uh, there's a lot of things that are very valuable for that. So if you can uh, come up with a good system for that in your environment, whether it's a, a product or just good protocols for people to do, it, it really is very helpful that that messaging style is is good. Personally, I use email a lot. <laughs> but but if I if I want to do things at a you know a fast and collaborative pace, the messaging is definitely uh, definitely a lot better for that. I feel like I lost your video. No, oh, and I can't hear you at all. Yeah, we got connected. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now, now telling, I hear you. Yeah, you were telling about uh, you use uh, uh, the communication system. Oh yeah, no, I was just saying that I think I think you know different communication systems lend themselves to different things, and the chat um, is really a great collaborative tool, and it's even better if you can sort of do automations inside of it, and whether it's AI powered or you know more deterministically programmed to to do specific things for you with a chatbot to be able to like extract information and and basically do that. I, I think that that's a, a great uh, platform for operations teams. So. so as a person who is into security operations, what do you say about uh, this chat tool and uh, where uh, uh, all the uh, systems are integrated? Yeah. So. Yeah, I do think that I do think that um, if you have something that's doing a like a, a basically a collection of things within a, a chat, a, a great example would be security teams tend to not really want to write reports. You know, this is just something that I've noticed. They don't they don't like to refine and polish the report. So a great automation would be that when a couple of people are talking about a specific ticket that they're working, that there's a chatbot that actually extracts out relevant details from the chat and then sends a report to the two or three analysts who are working on it saying, this is the, this is the technical report that is a summary of the work that you did. 
Right. I mean, because we have to do reporting, we have to do collection, we have to do that. But if we, if our natural way of communicating is in chat, then why would we task a person with going back and scraping the information out of the chat that we just had, right? It's like a much more natural flow for us to just be able to do what we need to do in terms of that interaction and then extract the data. And you can write a chatbot that does that. And again, it doesn't even need to be an AI, ML-powered, you know, GPT, um, you know, driven chatbot, you can just write something to do that. And if if you're doing operations, truly doing operations in an efficient way, you find things like that. This is how my people want to work, right? <laughs> let me then let them work like that, get the things done, and not burden them with needless stuff. And, you know, there are specific technologies like a SOAR tool that would help you to accomplish this, like, you know, uh, you know, a chat, um, you know, platform like Teams or, or Slack or whatever that helps you to, to accomplish that. But if you take uh, either procedures or tasks or technology and layer that on that platform to make your operation smoother, you really can gain a lot of efficiency over time in order to uh, accomplish the things that you're that you're trying to do. And and socks usually are pretty small. I mean, 10 people, 15 people in a lot of organizations, it's not uncommon. When you start to get to big global organizations, it gets to 50, 100 people. But that's that's quite honestly rare um, for, for a lot of organizations. So finding efficiencies in technology is really important for it. Great. And uh, uh, you uh, worked uh, with uh, uh, thousands of students uh, globally. It focus on uh, overall security operations, monitoring capability, mobile mm-hmm. pen testing, and overall uh, operational program development. So how yep. is that? Um, how is it? Uh, I stay pretty busy. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, I right right now, um, a lot of the work that I do for consulting is around um, maturity for existing SOCs. Um, that's really, you know, my current focus. It's not the only thing that comes up, um, but it's less common for me to be asked to help people to build the sock from nothing. Um, I just did one of those earlier this year. Um, I'm sorry, last year. It is uh, Happy New Year, right? <laughs> Today is January 1st. So it was, um, it was late winter of 23. Um, there was a managed service provider that I worked with that they um, wanted to add a security service to the IT service offering that they had. So that I, um, you know, the the class that I teach, I basically did a private run of that class with their team. And um, the class basically is is all of my collected thoughts on how to design, build, and operate the the sock. So when I do it privately with people, what I do is I, I basically teach my class content, and I have like forty five or fifty different tasks within the class. So what we do is we kind of talk about what they need, what they're going to do, like how how they're going to solve this particular challenge that I'm I'm bringing to light. And so 
you know, one of the examples of these challenges that I that I ask people to think about and write down because this is really important. If you're designing something, write it down, collect that collect that thinking. As I say, what are your top five metrics for your SOC? Like the the organization wants security operations for some reason. Let's talk with the people who are sponsoring the build of the SOC and decide now what are the top five metrics. Because if we can articulate that really early on and come to a good understanding of how the performance of the SOC will be judged perpetually, then we can build a SOC that suits those expectations. Because unfortunately, what people will do a lot of times is say, build the SOC, and then people go off and build the SOC, and they come back and start operating the SOC, and then the organization's like, oh, well, we need to measure this to see if it's successful. And then the metrics that are selected as to whether it's successful or not are not really the ones that the people who built the SOC had in mind, <laughs> right? So agreeing upon that very early on is, is really strong. I'm not saying that there aren't a lot of other metrics that would be collected, but starting with the top five and agreeing to the top five is really powerful from a design perspective. Yeah. So what is Montance? Hmm. Montance is my company. Um, so, you know, I work for myself and I, I don't have any employees. Um, Montance is, is um, basically a company that I created. And it's people ask me about the name of it. Like, what is it? What does it mean? And um, so when I... Uh, I think it was, I registered it maybe in 2011 um, when I was kind of, dis, when I decided I need to start this company in order to have the place where I'm going to do the work that I do. Um, I was like, well, I need a company name. And I said, uh, well, like a lot of people, when they create a company name, they're going to, you know, come up with like security um, you know, crows or whatever. My, my last name is Crowley, right? So it's like I use crows a lot in the, in the imagery of what I, whatever. So they, they come up with something and it's usually like the, the topic that they work in and then some other like emblematic representation of what, what is, why it's meaningful to their potential customers. Well, I, I didn't approach that that way for, for Montance. What I, what I did was I, I thought, you know what? I need something that's, completely unique. I need something that doesn't have any intellectual property encumbrance already. So I, I looked for a word. I not looked for, I created a word, but the creation was like it needs to be in a space where there's some, there's nothing that exists already. And so I also imposed the constraint on myself that it needed to be exactly eight characters long. And the exactly eight characters long was because that is the the um, the maximum length for a Unix uh, user account and, and like old Unix systems. So it has for me, it has a couple of different layers of meaning. But the most important thing was that it had no meaning in a pre-existing way. And if you look it up in English and French and Spanish, any of the Romance languages, that word, the entire word, doesn't exist. Um, mont m o n t um, in French is mountain, but that has nothing to do with it. It's not like it's like, it's not like it's the, the mountain named A-N-C-E. It's just, it's a new word. 
So that's it. That's it. But it's the name of my company. You know, it's kind of like Kodak. I don't know if you know this story, but Kodak, which is uh, in the U.S., is a company out of like uh, I think it's Eastman, New York. Um, that name, that name um, was a creation, essentially a marketing creation, and so it's a lot more like Kodak than anything else. Just it's just a name that I came out of, you know, came up with out of nowhere because nobody else used it. So. Awesome. So, what service do you provide with this? Hmm. Um. So, a, a few basic things. The the first one is, um, and and let me preface this in terms of the services. I run this company by myself, and so I I have had to come up with a very sort of streamlined business practice to make things work for me. So, the simplest and cheapest thing that I offer is a Gantt chart um, that basically is the collection of all of my thought on what it would take to to build a SOC class. But oftentimes people will ask me like, hey, I can't afford to go to your class or we can't afford a big project with you or whatever. How can you help me? And so I have this Gantt chart it's basically a summary of my uh, basically a summary of my soft class. Um, then I do a, a fixed cost sort of like assisting people. You follow the Gantt chart. I'll sort of provide some feedback uh, to you throughout the uh, throughout the Gantt chart. And if you're not familiar with Gantt charts, it's a basically a task list with a um, a, a sequence and a estimated time and a listing of the people who should be participating in the various tasks. Okay. So um, then I do the maturity assessments, uh, which is uh, basically um, I assess your security operations. Now, the assessment, I typically use SOC CMM, um, which is something that Rob Van Oes um, out of the Netherlands wrote. And it is a uh, basically a basis of doing an audit and assessment of a security operations capability. So I do that with teams. The way that I do it, I usually do it over the course of about three or four months, and I do like two interviews of about 30 minutes um, per week. So it's this um, extended discussion of all the different things that you do. A SOC CMM has three, 400 different questions, maybe even more than that, um, depending upon what you're, what exactly you're doing. And then it comes up with a scoring of how uh, mature and capable your SOC is. And then I do custom work with um, organizations. If they have specific things that they want me to do in the security operations space, I'll, I'll do that. Um, and so that usually involves like, you know, extended contract negotiation and all that stuff, which is as a person who just runs his own business and I really just want to do the technical stuff, doing all the contracting and all that is like another job on top of it, it all. So I don't do that unless it's kind of a bigger, a bigger project. But so that's, those are the services that I offer. It's, it's really about making the, um, you know, the organization more performant. Of course, I already mentioned my class. So the class I teach publicly, and then I also do it where I um, will do it privately um, within organizations just for their team. That that works out pretty well um, for, for a lot of folks um, just because it lets them have only the right people in the room and have the conversations that need to happen in that c- kind of classroom setting. You, 
you probably have experienced this. You you go and you're like you're listening to somebody talk, whether it's me or training or whatever. You start thinking about the things that are relevant to you. It just happens naturally. We all do this. But if you have your classmate, uh, your 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 coworkers in the class as your classmates, if then there's a pause and you all can have that discussion of the things that you were just thinking about for the topic that I was just discussing, it becomes um, a, a very intense <clears throat> creation period for a team of people who are working on something. So the class becomes sort of like a, um, an incubator for the, uh, for the creation of the sock or for the maturity of the sock. I actually, during COVID when I was home, so in 21, um, there was a Middle Eastern group um, that had just won a major contract um, and they had a small sock, but they needed to take this team of like four people and turn it into 30 people in a hurry. Right? I mean, it's like they literally needed to just hire as many people as they could very quickly in order to fulfill this massive contract that they just got. And so the owner of that company contacted me and I did the um, I did. I taught my class to them. I mean, remotely, of course, but it was like, I can't remember. I was either doing it really late at night or really early in the morning because I, I do a lot of work with people all around the world. So I, you know, I have, uh, I have a contract currently where I work with a sock based in India. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with them at like 8 a.m. But this, these folks in the Middle East, it was, you know, I think I was starting class at 6 a.m. and I would go for like three hours every, every day. Um, but it was, it was great. And then here just a couple of years later, um, um, the, the owner of the company, Samir, came back to me and, and said, you should see how successful we are. It's like, this has been amazing. Not only did we do great with that contract, but we've done great with all of these other contracts too. And now we're growing throughout the Middle East and we have all these, all these things going on. So it's like, that's, that's the service stuff that I do to help people to, to enhance their, their capabilities. So uh, you have done everything. Uh, you have studied uh, technology uh, uh, in your career and uh, you have taught uh, thousands of people what is technology and uh, how to uh, think about technology, how to use that technology. And now uh, uh, through your business, uh, you are helping organizations to build their teams and helping them uh, internally to how to manage their teams uh, in order to get the uh, great output. So uh, being in uh, all all types of uh, things uh, related to technology. You worked in technology, how things work, you know how the security mm -hmm. operations will work, and you mm -hmm. also tell how, uh, you know, security things should be used for different applications and helping yeah. organizations. So, uh, in total, uh, technology services, understanding about IT industry, technology industry, how is that? Yeah, so... Um... You know, the, the classic depiction of things is that you have a technology, you have a process, and you have a person, right? I mean, it's like, it's, it's like you, and you need to balance these things. I can have the absolute best tech, but if I don't have good people who understand how to use that technology, then it doesn't matter if I give them instructions on how to use it. They're not going to be able to, uh, to, to basically implement it well. So, so for me, what I see is that different groups, 
have different deficiencies and the the solution is is never really like a a, a very clear cut solution there's usually an aspect of technology an aspect of the discipline of implementing procedures well and an aspect of having people be well trained and effective and driven and all that stuff and and hopefully happy you know it's like if i'm if i'm designing a sock or something i'm i'm always thinking the people who are working there i'd really like them to to be happy but it's not just about happiness it's being rewarded by the work that you're doing where you see that it's fulfilling and effective and so on um so you know really i, I when i try to work on projects or when I work on projects, I try to find projects that are going to do a lot of good and be beneficial and, you know, help organizations to to avoid damage, because that's a, a huge problem for a lot of organizations right now is they're being affected by ransomware. They're spending lots of money on cybersecurity, and then they still end up having problems. And when they do have problems, they fall apart pretty quickly. They're not resilient. They're not adaptive. So all of that stuff is it's pretty hard to figure out the right way to get people to do things well. And sometimes the better so the solution is get a better technology. The technology that you're using is old. But oftentimes, at least with the people that interact with me, um, they have great technologies already. But what they're struggling with is how do they take that technology and implement it well for their organization? And there's not a lot of training or guidance or instruction on how to do that specifically, right? I mean, have you ever heard of a training class on like how to implement technology well tailored for your company? Like that that doesn't really exist. And and I've tried to provide it in my SOC class, but it's a very narrow circumstance. I'm not doing this generally of like how to implement technology well. And and you there we do have frameworks for that. You know, Agile is a great example of like how to develop well for your organization. And there's training on the Agile methodology for the implementation of things. But oftentimes that's training is very generalized and it's not exactly about how to do that in this specific project. It's about how to do agile generally in programming, right? We have project management training for people. Project management is a, you know, how to maintain efficiencies of teams of people to accomplish a specific goal in a very driven way. But the idea of how do I implement technology operationally to have long-term sustained operations, there's, it's, it's a gap. And, and I think it's a gap simply because really the technology changes enough every five years that you're operating in a different context. I mean, 10 years ago, it really wasn't about cloud computing. You know, and so it's like now the cloud computing comes up and what is the training on cloud computing? How to implement it, right? And so it's like people get really smart really fast on how to implement this current cloud technology. And then there's a different one. Okay, well, now we need to move from this one to that one. Now we need to move our Active Directory from internal to external. But each one of those trainings are very specific to that technology implementation, and they're not about the 
how do you do IT well? And I just consider security as a subset of IT, to be perfectly honest. How do you do IT well for an organization? And that's, that's really hard and we struggle with it. And the reason for that is IT is so new and it's changing so much that that doing it well is a, you know, it's a, a thing that we're always chasing. <laughs> But how do you understand as a as an individual contributor? How do you understand uh, businesses and uh, uh, their systems? Yeah, yeah. So um, the maturity assessment is a great way to help to understand that. Um, but I actually, even if I'm even if I haven't done a maturity assessment, um, I have interviews. I do written interviews with with staff. I ask their staff for um, demonstrations of of what they're doing. I also um, we'll ask for documentation and I'll read all the documentation that they already have. I know the documentation's wrong. I know that. But by getting somebody else's written content and then reviewing it, it gives me a sense of where things are. Um, and then I map that to a, um, you know, specific to a security operations capability. I map that to a reference model that I wrote for my class. I first wrote it in 2016. Um, and and it, it's basically this. There's some sort of business alignment that needs to exist. There's some sort of monitoring capability that needs to exist. There's some sort of threat intelligence capability that needs to exist. I need to have I need to have incident handling in some form. I need to have forensic analysis in some form. And I need to have what I call self-assessment. Um, and the, the self-assessment is is a combination of vulnerability management, baseline creation, um, pen testing, uh, the, the ability to do, uh, you know, this sort of like um, picture of what does the IT internal topography look like and share that with security, right? All of those are necessary components for your operations. And underneath all of that is sort of like plumbing. Who, you know, it's like, is the technology well-maintained? Is it connected well together? And so I will look at an organization's implementation for their security operations against this sort of mental reference. And it's not just mental, it's written down. And it's if you go look at the presentations on my website, I reference it over and over and over again in there because when I created it, the intention was to give that to other people as a reference. And the reference then becomes, do you have all of these things? And if you don't, then you need to fill in the gaps and supplement in order to make it happen. And and if you say, well, we don't do incident handling in our SOC, there's another team. I'm like, okay, well, I can now understand how to do the plumbing or the electrical connection or whatever analogy you want to use for it to get the monitoring information that is in your SOC over to that incident handling capability that's somewhere else in your organization. And so this reference model is what I go back to is my mental constructs to be able to make sure that security operations has all the components that are necessary to, to, to work. And if there are components missing, that it's like, well, we need to build this. How do we build this? Well, we get people to run processes on technology, right? And whatever the com- compositions are that I can create 
uh, for that, well, then I can I can help that to, to be. And if you have nothing, well, we need to build it all, right? And again, like from that, I have a talk that I gave at RSA uh, many years ago to, sh- again, share my model of the technology um, that's needed for security operations. And you can look that up. It's, the title is uh, Technology Taxonomy, Security Operations Technology Taxonomy. The idea is that I've listed all of the categories, and this is these are all just like my mental constructs for thinking, and I've shared them because they're really powerful. I literally sat there, and not just sat there one time, but over years revising and refining this list of here's everything you would need to build the sock, everything. And, I, and of course, I've missed some stuff, but as somebody who's worked specifically in this space for a long time, creating this taxonomy – and sharing it with people freely to, to like to help you do what you need to do, it's really powerful. And somebody would take that and be like, oh, he missed this one, or oh, the name of this changed. And I'm like, great, I'll just revise it. But the taxonomy is persistent. And the, the in the same way that the reference model for the SOC is persistent, you can take that and reformulate that endlessly for the various tasks that people have. And again, you know, if I'm actually interacting with an organization, I will, I will work with them and understand them through their documentation, through uh, understanding of the current implementation and uh, interviews and, and, and so on. And then I'll say, well, this is what it looks like to me is deficient. This is what it looks like is really good as well. I want to be positive and show the things that you can do. But here are places where we need to improve. And I know that you don't want to hire a lot more people. And oftentimes that's actually not the optimal solution. But this is how I would suggest that you kind of reformulate things in order to make it better. And again, one specific example of that for a customer that I'm working with right now is they have vulnerability management. Their vulnerability management has been around for a while. I'm helping them to move their vulnerability management into more of a a pen test capability. They're enhancing the offering from an existing team by changing procedures and adding a little bit of technology in order to make things better. Right. And it's like that's the right team. And I worked with their their manager um and I, I know this organization fairly well because I've worked with them on and off for a couple of years doing different things. So I have a very good understanding of that. And so this is how I'm a good individual contributor where I'm both outside and I can integrate very effectively with different teams because I have a, um, a, de- a well-developed ability to quickly assess um, an organization and a team and so on. And I can do it quickly and also reasonably objectively because it's not just about my feelings or thoughts. It's about the basis that I'm using as a reference because I can then externalize my thinking and say, well, here's the map. This is what I think. And then show that to that team, share with them my rationale and my thinking. And then they can, they can counter that and say, no, I don't think that's right. I don't, I think, I think you missed this or, well, we don't need that. And if, the organization says we don't need it. And I look at that and I understand that. I'll say, yeah, okay, maybe you don't need that. Let's get rid of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't spend any money on that. That's, that's pointless. Or you already have lots of resources for that. Don't worry about it. 
right? So that's that's how I do that as a kind of an individual contributor. And is I'm, I'm a good integrator into different teams of people, and I tend to work with four or five different teams at the same time, which is really hard actually um, to be able to like uh, have the the necessary um, context switching <laughs> to be able to jump from this group to that group and know that. They run this sim and they run a different sim and this person likes that specific thing and this organization has these specific sensitivities or requirements or industry things. So there's a lot of that sort of mental gymnastics that's necessary to accomplish that. And uh, you are being the uh, evidence and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you saw the evolution of the technology from last uh, 20 years. Yep. So what is the what is the uh, uh, difference that you are observing when it comes to security operations and organizations? Yeah. Yeah. So um, over the last really, um, I'll say five years, there's been a huge increase in the effectiveness of SOAR tools. So from a very specific technology, um, SOAR tools are not new. Um, I, you know, have been writing automations manually for stuff for decades. And this is what good systems administrators do. We write automations and we tailor those automations to our environment. But the SOAR tools really have captured that in a domain-specific way in the last five years. That's That's been great. That's been a very positive thing. Um, other things that I've seen, you know, sort of going far back, the operating systems, specifically Windows operating systems, don't suck anymore in terms of cybersecurity. Because 20 years ago, uh, Windows was atrocious. I mean, 20 years ago, there was no Patch Tuesday. It didn't exist. Patching from Microsoft was was ad hoc. I, I have it somewhere. I can't remember exactly what it was. But it was right around 2004-ish. You can check my reference. There's like a, a specific date. Microsoft announced that they will be adding this thing called Patch Tuesday uh, in order to help operations with the tempo of patching their systems. Now, if information systems were fixed from a security perspective, we wouldn't need Patch Tuesday anymore. But we still need it, and and we will continue to need it for decades. But the difference is now, compared to 20 years ago, the operating systems are actually designed to be resilient. And, and you know, a good example of this is that when iOS um, for, for Apple uh, mobile devices first came out, iOS, <clears throat> in my opinion, is more secure of an architecture than Android is. And, and if you look at when they first came out, there were a lot of security controls in iOS that Android just didn't have when it first came out. But what has been really interesting to me over the last decade of growth in the mobile space, and I'm saying mobile because it's like a greenfield example of operating systems compared to the Unix and uh, Windows desktop stuff that was the decade before that. What's more, what's very interesting to me about that is that the change was faster in the two primary or two currently primary um, operating systems for mobile stuff. 
and Android has really added a lot of security features um, very quickly from when it first came out. Because when it first came out, it was it was really terrible um, from a security perspective. Um, iOS was a lot less terrible when it started, <laughs> right? So what has changed, I think, is that the frameworks that are available for organizations who are going to build something new are more robust than they were 20 years ago. And if you want to look at a current change that's happening now, the obvious one is the machine learning, uh, you know, products that are offered. And some of the same mistakes are being made again in machine learning. And of course, in the, uh, you know, the machine learning space, machine learning is not new. Um, you know, what's new is having enough computation power via the primarily NVIDIA GPUs, um, having enough computation power to do linear algebra at scale to be able to actually do fitting on models that will come up with models that are actually good at prediction. And this is what's really, really new in the in the space right now is that we're moving a lot of work from more static statistical analysis to predictive models that are good enough to do very specific tasks. And that's exciting, really. And, and we're, we're at the cusp of that. And it became really popular this year, but there was a lot of AI that was in use already. There was a lot of machine learning networks that had been implemented. And, you know, people who work in this space really should understand the machine learning networks are still just programs, right? It's like, that's just the way that it's working. These computers don't understand stuff yet. They take inputs, it goes through a non-deterministic program, but still it comes out the other side and it's still just a program. But what's really exciting about this currently is there's value in predictions and there wasn't really so much of that previously. But what I am seeing right now is people rushing to implement this new technology in spaces where it's really not a good match. And I just had a conversation, you know, I do this um, consulting thing with a, another group. Um, it's called IANS, where it's like they do this ask an expert thing. Um, and so I have an hour long conversation with a company and they bring in their team or whoever they want to ask me questions for an hour. So I, I do this with IANs and I had a I had a conversation. It was a, a CISO for a large company and a whole bunch of security staff. And they were asking about implementing AIML in a specific content. And I won't say what the specific thing was, but the, the CISO asked me the question, do you think I'm crazy? And I want AIML to do four or five different things. And for the four or five different things, I said, look, <clears throat> only one of those is actually good for ML. Only one, of, only one of these things on your wish list is actually a good application for a machine learning type context. And let me tell you why the other four are not. And, and basically for every one, my explanation was you don't have enough data 
to train the network to do the things that you want it to do. You don't have enough data for that. If you don't have enough data to train a network, ML is not a good application. And I said, you're, you're saying you want this thing done. Just do a project to write a program, a custom program <laughs> to implement that. You already, you have some data, write rules, think about this, characterize the situations that you have that you're trying to assess. And then if you can't characterize it well, have an analyst go and look at it. That's just, you need to deal with that that way. ML is not magic, right? So that's one problem that we're seeing in that space right now is people think, oh, here's a new tool. I can use it to solve all my problems. The other thing that's happening in the ML space, which happens every time there's a new technology, is organizations overshare. So now you have companies with employees that are taking sensitive information to chat GPT is a good example, but it's not the only one. It's just the most popular one. And they're asking questions to chat GPT, which are very sensitive to the organization. And chat GPT is happily, you know, generating outputs based on its pre-trained transformational d direction. So it's generating these outputs, but you know what it's also doing? It's logging the sensitive information from that employee and the employee's IP address. So now OpenAI has correlation of information between that specific company and the sensitive details from that company. And so that's what I mean by oversharing. You know, when we've, we've told people don't go to search engines and put this stuff in there if it's potentially sensitive from the organization, but now people are using generative pre-trained transformers. It's just another search engine, right? But we're oversharing because it's a good, effective search engine. What are we searching for? We're searching for an answer. We're searching for an explanation. We're searching for um, code we can copy and paste. But if you do that, you're sharing information with this organization that, that might be might be inappropriate to share. And so that's that's happening right now. And and it will get better. In the next couple of years, there'll be a lot of sort of guardrails put in place. But this is what happens in cybersecurity. As something new comes up, some growth happens, and then cybersecurity catches up with it over the next six or 12 months to put those guardrails in place to tell people, no, 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 don't do that. But what would really be nice is if cybersecurity was looking at the emerging technologies and proactively saying, hey, you know what, here's a new emerging technology. Here's how you could use this really well to accomplish your tasks. And here's how we would suggest that you use it well. But cybersecurity really isn't an emerging technology space yet, right? We're not. But that's actually where we should be. We should be the ones that are looking forward and finding new technologies, whatever the thing is that comes out after a GPT, right? because the GPTs or the generative um, you know, image creation has been really powerful for a lot of people. What's next? And our cybersecurity team should actually be looking for that because that's actually where the threats are. 
in the future. And threats aren't just about, you know, very specific um, problems. Oftentimes they're about cultural deficiencies within the organization. And if we're really thinking about protecting operationally, we need to start to add some of that um, proactive, emerging and predictive kind of stuff to people in our organization. So uh, working in uh, AI stuff, uh, uh, what is the security operations in it? Oh, yeah. So uh, I think that there are great applications for security operations. Um, and actually, there's a really fantastic report from McKinsey. So, you know, if if you're looking for a reference basis, McKinsey did a good study that they released at the beginning of 23. And um, what they're saying is that the uh, the the primary use for generative AI currently is marketing. It's not really much of a surprise. But I want to think about this from a security operations perspective. What is marketing for the SOC? Well, marketing for the SOC actually takes the form of the metrics that we produce. So, so my suggestion to SOCs is think about your metrics not as a thing that you need to report, but as an opportunity to market your capability and to market the change that you would like to see in your organization. And I think that especially generative technologies are really effective for that. And related, but but second after the sort of metrics uh, component is reporting on incidents. Quite honestly, you could hook up a generative task. And when I say generative, I, I mean something like ChatGPT, but there are other things. You know, generative in GPT, GPT means generative pre-trained transformer, right? It takes some inputs and it generates some outputs that are in the form that you probably want. So you could take your ticketing system and tell a generative transformer, take the tickets that we did last month and write a report for the CISO that explains the work that we've done. Like, that would be a great application. You've got all this data that's sitting there that you're not really doing much with. Get the transformer to create a report for you. And again, this is an area in cybersecurity operations where we're already not really interested. So if we have a technology that does it and does it reasonably well, and it's basically embedded into tools that we already have, and we have the data, the data is free, that's a fantastic implementation of it. The other one that is completely uh, separated from the generative stuff, I really think that there are fantastic opportunities for outlier detection using machine learning algorithms. And some of this will come in the form of the vendor product that, that you buy, that it will already have some sort of a, an actual ML embedded outlier detective capability. But I do actually think that the technology, the actual hardware is cheap enough at this point that any security team that exists already 
should have at least one laptop with at least one good GPU in it. And if you have that and you go and get, you know, Jupyter Lab installed and you install Python and you get the TensorFlow modules or whatever you want to use, scikit-learn or whatever, and you have one person that's sitting there taking examples that have already been released by other people <laughs> and taking those examples and applying them to your data and doing that over time, I think that there's an opportunity to build at least at least one hunting-like detection being driven off of machine learning. And if you have more funding or more capable people to implement that at larger scale, you could actually probably start to engineer detections that are driven by machine learning capability. Because again, machine learning is not magic, it's just math. So that's, that's what I think the application is currently. Really good generative stuff and actual low-lying machine learning math-driven detections, either hunting or truly engineered detections. So as an, uh, as an observer, uh, what do you say about these uh, uh, technology companies, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or uh, any other uh, social media platforms? Uh, uh, because Elon Musk also uh, was talking about everything. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think that security measures and operations need to be considered while uh, experts are working on this? As an expert, what is your observation? Yeah, so I think that that's a conversation that I could probably spend an hour just talking about that one thing of like how to use social media platforms well, right? From a, from an organizational perspective. So um, let me just try to answer that very briefly because I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, one is part of security operations needs to be what I call, I use the label pen testing for it, but it's it's actually a sort of a larger context for that. Um, and one of the things that I would want my internal pen testing, which is more of like a, a testing, a security testing kind of capability in my SOC, I want them to consistently do open source intelligence gathering on the organization itself. So part of what that team's responsibility would be, would be to review the entirety of the social media domain and, you know, universe, really, right? Review that universe for um, information about our organization on an ongoing basis. Some of this will be sentiment from threats who are, trying to attack us, and they're trying to gather information about what other threats know about us. So this isn't, this isn't on Twitter necessarily, but there may be some of that on Twitter. Um, but then also, so there's the threat actor, but then there's also the innocent but um, still problematic insider who's sharing information on social media. But it might be also the insider who's not so innocent, who's disgruntled, who's sharing information on social media. All of those, my security team needs to be aware of that. And that's something that we can use social media for. 
Another part of that is, of course, social media from my team's perspective. If I'm trying to hire talent into my organization for my security operations, I need people to be aware that my company really believes in cybersecurity and the people who work for my company are happy and motivated and accomplishing things. So that also means that we need to be doing outreach using social media for that. Um, and then I think that there's some interesting attributes of social media that we need to understand contextually different groups of people, which is the social part of this, right? Different groups of people socialize in different ways. And a lot of social media actually is culturally specific. And so uh, as an organization, you need to understand that certain teams of people and different teams within the organization are going to use these technologies in different ways. And the last part of it that really worries me about social media when teams use it is how they might be using the official platform, Teams, as an example, to do some stuff. But what they're really using is TikTok to then share information because it's more convenient for them to be within the social fabric of their coworkers and friends in the same app. And so when business information crosses from a business provided platform to a personally owned or a lot of people used to call it BYOD, right? But it's not really BYOD. It's just your own device. It's not bring your own device. You're just using it, right? You're not bringing it to work. Of course, it's with you all the time, but it's more convenient for a lot of individuals to just use that device. So what's happening is they're crossing the line with sensitive business information from the official platform to the personal platform, and they're doing that consistently, and that's taking it out of view um, from us. And actually, there was a really interesting, um, you know, case recently. It wasn't a case. It was an incident. Um, Storm 058 is what Microsoft labeled it. If you go and look at that, um, you see some problems initially introduced where, a an advanced and capable threat actor stole development information from a Microsoft developer's computer. And this computer, while it was an official computer, was a development computer, and it had essentially weaker protection profiles on it. And the information that was stolen from that development computer was actually able to be used to affect production Azure Active Directory accounts. And it wasn't supposed to be, you know, allowed, but turns out there was a problem in their implementation. And so there was an ability to upgrade access from a development context to a production context. And actually, there's a lot of precedents for this in cybersecurity intrusions. Attackers will attack the weaker environment learn from that weaker environment, and then move into the production environment. And the analogy that I'm drawing here is 
the chats that are happening between individuals in one context are bleeding over into the business environment. And that occurrence has happened over the last several decades over and over and over again. And so if we have this sort of single converged environment where all of your work and all of your personal stuff is all done in the one app, that's going to be a huge problem for organizations to manage over the next several years. Eventually, in a long enough term, you could operate like that. But I think that most organizations don't want to operate like that because most organizational structures expect a certain sort of separation between the individual and the individual's personal life and the organization and the individual's organizational life. And most companies expect that separation. In places where there is literally no expectation of separation between your personal entity and the um, social mesh that you exist in, well, then sure, a, a fully converged app would make sense. But in a, in a, a cultural or, um, you know, like a, a legal environment where there is some expectation of separation, I think that the paradigm will always be separation of IT assets in some form. So, uh, as, a, uh, as a trainer uh, uh, communicating and uh, making uh, people to understand about uh, cybersecurity, thousands of people. So, how uh, uh, you can make uh, people to uh, solve the problem or understand the problem? Uh, how do you do analysis and how is this, uh, uh, you know, years of experience uh, teaching people? Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, part of that question is what I'm going to answer. You actually asked, how do I do analysis? And, and that's something that we haven't talked about yet. And it's, it's something that I think is incredibly important. In the cybersecurity context, the methodology that I use most commonly in order to do analysis is something called analysis of competing hypotheses or it's ACH for short. And it's frequently used in, um, well, it was originally published out of the intelligence community, not cybersecurity, but um, intelligence and the, the classic um, government spying sense, right? <laughs> that, that intelligence community. Because now we have all sorts of things. We talk about artificial intelligence. We talk about whatever. I'm talking about intelligence from the like, the governmental intelligence um, background. So ACH was originally published in a book um, from the Central Intelligence Agency of the U.S. R the book uh, author was Richard J. Hauer, but of course, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't just him. And this is from, you know, d a decades of uh, intelligence work. ACH, quite simply, is you brainstorm a bunch of hypotheses, you list out all the data that you have, and then you actually do an analysis from within that. You can go read the book. It's, it's useful. I'll tell you it's quite simple. You basically are building a two-dimensional array with data, potential hypotheses, and then scoring each hypothesis based on that specific data element. Not exactly easy to do, but it's pretty powerful. Um, and so in the cybersecurity practice 
I actually encourage people to build out um, templates for analysis and use those to expedite the analytical practice. Okay? And I train people on this pretty consistently. I show people how to do this with simple examples. But then when I'm working with teams of people, I will frequently build templates to address a specific problem. And I'm going to give you two specific examples of this. The most recent one was I actually was working with a customer and I was helping that customer's threat intelligence practice. Now, threat intelligence and cybersecurity is usually mostly associated with, uh, with the idea of um, attribution. Who just attacked us, right? This is an attribution task. Um, and so I was helping with that, but I was also with that threat intelligence team integrating them into the security operations practice. And so what I was showing was here are all the data sources. And it was a fairly detailed list of data where it's like, here's all the stuff that you could potentially have. And for you, the the universe of potential threat actors doesn't really matter. What really matters is, is it um, a more generic threat actor? Is it a targeted threat actor? Or is it a um, insider? Like these are your concerns around attribution. And so it's like I had sort of hypothesis categories and then sub hypotheses within these categories, as well as data categories and specific data entries within this. And I was like, here's a really good start for every time that you need to do attribution. And if you just start here and then brainstorm, see if you have other stuff within these subcategories, you're, you're going to organize your you're thinking very well, and now everybody on your team can actually approach the analysis problem the same way. And then if there's not exact consensus among your analysts, which I'm, I'm usually suspicious if all the analysts say exactly the same thing, what that means to me usually is that one analyst told the other analyst what to say, Maybe not directly, but just because that analyst is usually the smart person. And so everybody just falls in line. <laughs> but if I force people to actually externalize their thinking in doing this analytical practice, then now we have a better model, a better explanation, because we don't have just blind consensus. We have independent analysis with a unified um, um, analytical practice. And I think that that's I think that that's really important. And I think that if there's one thing that I could train people on that's that's more important than anything else, it's having some basis of performing analysis in this space. And the reason for that is that in cybersecurity, we almost never have full and complete data with clear parameters of accuracy. And I'm literally quoting Richard J. Howard there. That is an exact quote from his book. If we do not have clear parameters of accuracy in our analysis, then how do you know you're right? Well, you don't. You don't know you're right. You can't know you're right. So how do you get better in cybersecurity? Well, you go back to your methodology of analysis. 
And if you refine this methodology of analysis over time, eventually you can actually take that and say, well, this is why I think I'm accurate. This is why I think I have some degree of precision, because this is the methodology that I followed. Because you can't say I'm right if you don't have all the data and you don't have clear parameters of accuracy. You can't build the system that's a machine for doing the analysis. So that's, I think, really and truly the most important thing to train people on, how to perform analysis well. So, uh, so at last, uh, how do you define uh, Montant uh, uh, in simple words? It's meaningless. I mean, I mean uh, the the services that you're providing through it. Oh, oh, what are the services that I offer by my company? Because that's my definition of Montance. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so um, so the uh, the simple words for the services that I offer it is effective design, build, and operations of uh, security operations. And I can provide services to make that happen for the design, the build, the operation, and the maturity of a security operations practice. To any scale, it can be larger, smaller, medium, any scale. To any scale, to any scale, I, I can do that. I will say that usually the small, um, it's hard to afford me doing a, a large project which is why I did the Gantt chart. The Gantt chart for a small business is pretty much all that like that one person needs. And I, I actually sell that for $35. I do it on a sliding scale, but the minimum is $35. And, and it's all of my collected thoughts in one Gantt chart on how to do design, build, and operate. And I did that because I want to help small businesses, but there's only one of me, right? So it's like most small businesses aren't going to be able to afford me to do a custom project with them. Great. As a, as a cybersecurity expert, as a founder, as a trainer, what is your observation about my global work? So I'm I'm not uh, I'm not super familiar with it. When you uh, when you contacted me, I went and looked and saw a bunch of uh, a bunch of different things. And it looks like what you're trying to do is find experts in lots of different uh, domains and just talk to them and collect information from them about how they're doing their work. And so I think that it's uh, I think that it's useful. I think you also it's positive that you have a sponsor helps you to have your, <laughs> you know, your practice. And it helps you to uh, helps you to basically, you know, expand your understanding and horizon. And I think that that's great. And I, you know, wish you the best with uh, continuing to do that and growing this to whatever magnitude you want to uh, and are able to grow it to. So maybe one day, uh, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, that guy that everybody sees on uh, on television. I did an interview with him decades ago. <laughs> Definitely, your your words will definitely become true. Uh, I actually did uh, master's in software engineering, also bachelor's in computer science and engineering. Right yeah. now, I'm uh, doing some DevOps engineering projects for a UK company, and 
now for oh. a US company remotely. So apart from that is my full-time job. Apart from yeah. that, I'm trying to understand uh, uh, how technology services and technology products uh, uh, in different uh, parts of the world. Uh, more than 100 countries experts I have interviewed uh, for my channel who are working in different organizations. They can be founders, CEOs, CFOs, uh, 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 CROs, like all kind of stuff. People who are working uh, 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 on business side of the technology also people who are working on engineering and development of a, of a, of a, of a software. So yeah. I'm trying to understand uh, the engineering and the development of the uh, uh, systems and also trying to understand uh, uh, how business works uh, uh, in the world. So how this whole thing is contributing to humanity and mm. how this. I try to interview also people who are working in space technology in NASA, uh, try yeah. to understand what kind of technology they are using in order to make things happen. So as an expert, as a person who is into technology from long time, as a trainer, as a person who teach people how things work, how, how to solve problems, uh, what, what is your observation? How this, uh, uh, this project uh, is going to add value to uh, my career or my future? Yeah, so I think that technology is an amazing enabler for people, but people who build technology deploy that technology into circumstances under time pressure and economic pressure, and the technical implementation really doesn't get deployed in a way where it's set up to be resilient to anything that might occur. Now, engineers want to build it with intolerances of expected failures and um, predictable circumstances, but they're not going to have enough money and time to be able to build this new technology or a new implementation of an old technology in a way that it's resilient to everything. And cybersecurity is the operational practice that is responsible for adapting and responding to unanticipated circumstances. <laughs> That's how it's going to help, is to help to avoid disaster and make it merely an incident. <laughs> it's a great observation. So, uh, can I put this video on my YouTube channel with your permission? Yeah, of course. Yep, that's fine. Are you going to edit it or just leave it as it is? I mean, I don't care either way. I'm just curious. Are you just going to yeah, do the I'll whole thing? As it is. Oh, yeah, great. Yeah. And also, can I put this audio and video clip on my podcast website, internet, social media, everywhere with your permission? Sure. Yep. Works for me. Yeah. And uh, I'll put your web link uh, on the screen and also in the description, also in my website as well. People who find a, a video anywhere in the internet can able to see the service that you're providing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Can see yep, the sure. problems that you're solving. Yep. Great. Thank you again, Christopher, for your yeah, time and sharing your experiences. Yeah, actually, I, I have a, a question. Do you have a way where you can share the video with me? Because I might want to like lift a little, a, like a short sec segment out and share it on my uh, on my YouTube channel. Definitely, can you do that? Uh, you can yeah. you, you can get it uh, in the chat uh, in the team. Okay. Uh, you know, chat. Uh, okay. Get it. Yeah, yeah, great. I'll just take it from there. And then what I'll probably do is I'll just like edit out a small little piece and uh, share it and then link back to your stuff.
for the larger sure. interview. Sure, sure. Thank you for yeah. your time. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, happy to. It was a good conversation. Thanks for uh, thanks for contacting me. Thank you, sir. Again, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Bye bye.